let's uh, turn in our Bibles, uh, just waiting for the system to pick up my voice. Let's turn our Bibles to Jonah and chapter 3. Jonah and chapter 3. Just to encourage Muchindu that you, where is it? you go to Jonah faster than I did when I was in your shoes. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, the minor prophets were always a source of, uh, yeah, trepidation. Obadiah, you spend the next 30 minutes looking. I was impressed that you went to the table of contents. <laughs> a very intelligent guy. All right. Jonah, and uh, we're going to be looking at chapter 3 this, uh, uh, this afternoon as we continue in our series of studies entitled Major Lessons in the Minor Prophets, a phrase that I have since discovered was not coined by me at all. Someone showed me a book by the same title that uh, led me to a bit of a humble moment, realizing that I am definitely not an inspired uh, prophet at all. But I can well understand that someone else would have thought the way I did because of the fact that we tend to think minor prophets are minor. They are not that important. Although we don't say it, but don't, we tend to think so. In actual fact, it's simply because of the, uh, the brevity of the books that they wrote compared to the major prophets who uh, wrote rather lengthy prophets, uh, prophecies rather, like uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and so on. So really that's the major difference. So far, as we have looked at um, Hosea, Joel, Amos, and Obadiah, I hope you have seen as we have been looking at the lessons, that these are not minor lessons. These are lessons that we all desperately need to learn for the well-being of our souls. We have seen that there were messages that were largely directed towards Israel and Judah, but we also saw that every so often, these prophets went to the Gentile nations because Yahweh was sovereign over the whole earth. He reigns over all. And in fact, as we come to uh, Jonah, that point is even brought out in a, an eloquent way because the whole book, is on a nation that is not Israel or Judah. It is on a city called Nineveh, the capital of a Gentile nation called Assyria, or an entire empire for that matter. And so clearly, this is showing that the God is sovereign over all. Well, we are in Jonah, and it is largely 
a written um, a narrative in the third person. So we are studying the life of an individual called Jonah. Apart from his actual prayer, where he speaks directly, most of it is in the third person. And what we have seen here is, first of all, that disobedience is costly. We saw that in chapter 1. We secondly saw uh, the repentance that is God-centered in chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, where we have arrived, we are looking at the God of second chances. The God of second chances. And again, as has become my habit, I want to begin with the last verse of the chapter. The last verse. And then we will slowly uh, start from the top and make our way down to the end. There's a way in which the, the last verse captures the heartbeat of the chapter. And we see here a God forgiving. A God forgiving. Jonah chapter 3 and verse 10. When God saw what they did, which is the wholesale repentance, how they turned from their evil way, there it is, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The God of second chances. Who is a pardoning God like you? Who has mercy of forgiveness so great and free? If there's anything we must never lose sight of in this life, it must be not just the grace of God, but the wonder of the grace of God. The wonder of the grace of God. We must, we must never get over the realization of God who in all his infinite righteousness and justice and wrath is still a God who forgives sinners. The worst of sinners. The Apostle Paul himself in the New Testament never got over it. And that's why he refers to himself as the chief of sinners, as he imagines what God has done for him in forgiving him, but more than that, as we shall be learning next weekend, in sending him out to become a preacher of the gospel. He considers himself the least of all the apostles, totally unworthy, and is amazed that God should still send him forth. We must never get over it. And if there's a chapter in the Old Testament that brings this out, it is exactly the one we're looking at, in two ways. First of all, it is the prophet himself being given a second chance. That's rare among the letters or books of the Old Testament that we should be 
having a prophet who is disobedient and God still says, fine, I'm giving you a, a second chance. And then secondly, it is a heathen nation. A heathen nation that is also given a second chance. Who is a pardoning God like thee? Who is a pardoning God like thee? So let's begin by considering together this chapter. And we see it, first of all, in the fact that God's purpose is irrevocable. When he sends us to do his bidding, he is someone who will still come back to us and say, yes, you spoiled it. Yes, you blew it. Yes, there is so much that I can say, but I won't say it because there's something greater than you blowing it. And it is my purpose for grace. That is even more important. And therefore, I am reissuing my call or appeal to you. That's what the Lord did with Jonah. He resent him. And this time, Jonah obeyed. Let's read together verse 1 up to verse 3. Verse 1 up to verse 3 and just the first half of verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And the Bible tells us, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Let's pause and drink this in, brethren. How? He was a disobedient prophet. He had run away from duty. He had sinned badly. He had caused so much chaos and stress. Well, the answer is quite simple. It is because God is good. That's the reason. God is good. He has willed redemption and will surely pursue that purpose. That's his chief agenda across history. It's not revenging here, slapping that one there, and being moody the following day. And so, uh -uh. The God who sits on the throne is on a redemptive agenda. And the intertwining of our lives are all pointing in that direction. Let's put ourselves in Jonah's shoes. He has just been vomited out upon dry land. That's what has happened. It's easy to imagine, at that point, Jonah simply saying, I've blown it. 
and heading home and saying to his wife, I was swallowed by a fish. Swallowed by a fish, what happened? And he narrates to her, this is what happened. I was supposed to go to Nineveh, but I got on a ship to Tarshish. I didn't want. There was catastrophe at sea. I was finally thrown into the water. I knew I was gone. Just before passing out, at the end of myself, I cried to God for mercy. I knew I was finished. Only to find myself thrust onto dry ground. The last thing I expect is any dealings with God at all. Because of what I did. Like the disciples, it's time to go fishing. Ah. Give it up altogether. And that's no more. When you have sinned against the Lord, not only against your conscience, but against the light. In other words, you know better. And you have denied the Lord three times, to borrow the, word, the picture of uh, Simon Peter. You just said to yourself, yes, others are going to be superheroes of the Christian faith. Others, yes, I can understand, but not me. Because of this shame that is here. So I'm simply now going to be watching others that are coming through who would not be as foolish as I was. Forget it. That would have been Jordan, Jonah. And I want to assure you, it's been the story of many pure warmers today. Started out as young believers, full of fire for the Lord. Full of fire. They could preach you out of your socks in their younger days. They wanted to see the whole campus, the whole college, the whole school come to Christ. But now, they are nothing but pure warmers. They are convinced that it's good enough that they are on the shelf. That's all. On the shelf. They blew it. And they blew it badly. Anytime they try to shake off dull sloth, the devil is quick to say, ah, 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 ah. <laughs> Remember. <laughs> Remember. 
get back, get back. Leave others to do this. You are nothing more than a mere embarrassment. I want to assure you that it's a failure to recognize that the God of heaven is a good God. He's a God of second chances. And here, in the midst of that despondency, come these words. Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. No reference to his disobedience. No reference to Kabiri. If you do it again, there's no reference. Zero. In fact, if you read chapter 1 and chapter 3, the beginning of those two chapters, you can easily swap them. Let's read it. Let's begin with chapter 1. If you're a chameleon, you can even keep your eyes on the two. One eye on chapter one, the other one on chapter three. You will see that the only difference is at the very end, in one case, we are told the wrong that Nineveh did, and in the last, it is simply the one who is giving the message. There, look at it. Then, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Chapter 3 simply says, the second time. That's why I'm calling it the God of second chances. Saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city and call out against it. In the first one, it is for their evil has come before me. And the second one is call out against it the message that I tell you. What a God. What a God. He's not like us. Because if I were God, I would tell you what I would have done. I would have said, now sit here. Remember what you did. You scandalize yourself, scandalize my name. I'm giving you a second chance. Behave yourself this time. Blah, blah, blah. The reason is obvious. The conscience of Jonah is enough to let him know that me? It's me, Lord? Are you sure this is me? But it's very clear, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, and it came a second time. What a wonder. What a wonder. Because our normal self-righteous view 
is that God does not use people who sin so grievously against him. He doesn't. That's our self-righteous view. And therefore, we put ourselves into that category and conclude, I am a basket case. Put me on the shelf until the Lord returns. But no. The Lord comes a second time and says, Jonah, arise, go, preach. My message hasn't changed. Arise, go, preach. The Bible is the same in the Old Testament and in the New. I've never forgotten my uncle. He's since died. But there was a time he said to me, I had just become a pastor then, and he said, young man, we are just lucky that the God who is there now is not the God of the Old Testament. Otherwise, we'd have all been charred out of existence. No, no, it's the same God. The same God. It's the same one who said to Peter, in fact, it wasn't to Peter at that point, but to the others, to go and tell Peter, not just the other apostles, but the other apostles and Peter, that I'm coming. Who spoke directly to Peter, and said, go and feed my sheep. He's the God of second chances. The question is, what is our response this time around? What is our response? If we start saying no, because, look, this is what I did last time. It is actually pride. That's what it is. It is pride. The only difference is you are peeping from the wrong side of the telescope. That's the only difference. It is some self-made humility. No me, you see. What? Not so with Jonah. Look at what happened. We are told, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. In other words, something had happened from the failure that now gives us a different Jonah. The trial that was failed was not a complete failure because Jonah learned something out of it. And what he learned was this. Trust and obey. For there is no other way 
to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. That this is what I really ought to do at any time when my God speaks to me. He's not asking me to do what it is that is culturally right with me or whatever else it might be. It is simply the Lord requires this of me, I do it. He is the Lord. Let him do with my life as he sees fit. Jonah's prayer, when he had come to the end of himself, was a surrender to God. Remember, we studied it last week. Salvation belongs to the Lord. I've been a brutish beast before you. I, I've been a, a, a rebellious son before. I deserve all this which has come upon me and even more. And then the Lord saves. This man retires his will. He retires. He's, he's been humbled. And when now the Lord says, Jonah, back into the field, there's no sign of struggle. Jonah arises. Jonah goes. Jonah does what the Lord tells him to do according to the word of the Lord. Is that you listening to me today? We're not doubting that you've blown it. What I'm asking is this. That as the Lord comes again and says, those gifts, that calling that I put upon your life, are you still leaking those knuckles, those wounds? Are you still in a pity party? Saying, Lord, no, maybe others who, who've, who've who've not sinned the way I have sinned? Or has your spiritual experience shown you that the God who is there is a God of goodness, a God of mercy, a God of love, a God of grace? And therefore, is being gracious to me. Gracious to me. And therefore, I must arise and do his bid. I want to just to you that this is where Judas and Peter go like this. Judas goes and hangs himself. How could I? How could I? I betrayed innocent blood and just hangs himself. But Peter becomes 
the foremost evangelist until Paul shows up. And even Paul shows up as the chief of sinners. And both of them are individuals whose story is about a second chance. Both of them. And they become the fiery evangelists who turned the first century upside down. Because of God's grace. The wonder of it all. The wonder of it all. Let me put it like this. This is where the devil has his greatest embarrassment. Because just when he thinks he has done a checkmate on God, God comes round and shows the actual fact his was just a check. It's God who produces the check. Just when he thinks that, yes, I've now incapacitated God's child, that same energy comes round and it's as if the child of God is saying I failed before I want to show from gratitude gratitude that I appreciate my God of a second chance look at this man Jonah His preaching stared an entire city. One of the greatest cities at that time. And the entire place, a heathen nation for that matter, experienced a spiritual revival. Let's read it. Verse 3 and verse 4. We're told, halfway through verse 3, Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Look at what transpired. Verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. Wow! Just when you thought the evil one has put a checkmate, God comes round. The very one that has been ridden off. God uses him to transform the moral 
spiritual nation that was a Gentile nation. The phrase Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. You will notice, it would have been enough to say, now, Nineveh was a great city. It would have been enough. But that's not going to represent the Hebrew. Uh, the Hebrew has the word exceedingly there, but it's, it's the English equivalent. It's not even the English equivalent. The Hebrew there, some of you will know this word immediately, is the word Elohim, which is God. Now, you can't be saying, now Nineveh was a God-great city. So, what was Jonah saying? It, it, it was talking in terms of it being so huge that the only size he could think of was God himself. So it's like, you know, when you go into a, a shop, I don't know about Zambia, but because we don't have too many people who are fat, so let's sort of take the American perspective a little bit more here, just trying to make sure we don't have any Americans in here. Uh, you know, you, you have sort of extra large, then you've got extra, extra large, then you've got extra, extra, extra large. Uh, you finally have to get to some extra, extra, extra where you're going to now put that, that biggest person that you know. So we're not quite sure what that is going to be. So you just say, well, the final God size. <laughs> Well, that's the picture that was being put here. It was this God-sized city. Huge. Populous. He describes it as three days' journey in breath. It may have been a journey by walking, though I doubt it, been a journey probably by a camel or some other form of transport that would have been there in those days. A horse. But the point nonetheless is, three days you are just going. Three days to get to, from one end to the other. And when Jonah arrived, this is the city he arrived in. It was one of the most ancient cities on the planet. Let me take you to its beginning. Genesis chapter 10. You won't find Lusaka there. Hmm? This is just after the flood. Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10. And um, let's see. Just want to avoid reading too much of it. Let's begin. Okay, I'll begin from verse, uh, verse 1, and then I'll skip a lot of things. So these are the generations of the sons of Noah. Okay? Uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 
sons were born to them after the flood. So this is now beginning immediately after the flood. Verse 2, I won't read the whole of it, just the sons of Japheth. Verse 6, the sons of Ham. Now it is under the sons of Ham that we come to this great guy called Nimrod. Verse 8, Cush, that's one of the sons of Ham, you will notice in verse 6. One of them is Cush, the other is Egypt and so on. So Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is, like, <coughs> it is said, like Nimrod, Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, which you will know about and so on. Let's come to verse 11. From that land, he, referring to Nimrod, went into Assyria and built Nineveh. You see how far back it goes. Just after the flood, here is the nation, this God-sized city, capital of Assyria that this man walked into. Why am I taking the time to describe all this? It, 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 picture it this way. This is not you arriving in Chief Mpenzeni's village with almost everybody being sort of a little rural. This is you arriving in Washington or arriving in Lagos, not even Lusaka. Lusaka, you're able to cross it. You sort of just uh, begin amazing grace from the airport. By the time you are coming to 10,000 years, you've arrived in Chilangara. This is you going into these, this major, major population center. And what does he do? He goes into the city a day's journey. In other words, one third of the city. Just one third. Proclaiming this message, which in English is about eight words. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. In Hebrew, it's even shorter, it's five words. Now, obviously, it's a summary of his message. But the point is the clarity of it. This period, and you are gone. These many more days, and you are gone. He's proclaiming a God of wrath. A God of justice. A God who must punish sin. He knows what he's talking about. He almost perished under this same God. And he's going proclaiming this message to him. To them. Well, what happened? We've said there was a major revival. Thankfully, 
from verse 6 to verse 9, we are given the details of that revival. The details. He didn't even have to preach across the hall of Nineveh because verse 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself sackcloth, and sat in ashes. In other words, as he was preaching, he only went a third of the way into the city when the people who were hearing him began to share with one another and others also shared with others and this was beginning to grip the population and word finally found its way into state house. This prophet of Israel who has landed in our city and this is the message that he is delivering. And the conscience of the king is smitten like the very people who are under him. From the highest position that the king has, look at what, he, what happens to him here. He rises from there, he removes his golden robes, covers himself with the lowest level of clothing, sackcloth, and sits not on a throne, but in ashes. A king! A king! And as if it's not enough, he issues a decree. Listen to this. Verse 7. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. Now this is reaching the other two days journey that this guy hasn't even reached. It goes all the way there now because it's the king sending his um, messengers on horses, on horseback, to go into the public squares to go and read the scroll before the people. This is the message. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, test anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Wow. Wow. What has happened here? God has used the most unlikely instrument to do this. Isaiah never managed that. 
Jeremiah never managed that. He was but a weeping prophet. Ezekiel never managed that. And yet we learn nothing about those men being failures in any way. Nothing. And God uses someone that we would want to call this good-for-nothing prophet to bring about a momentary revival in this great city. Who receives the glory? If you went and parted Jonah on the back, <laughs> he would probably kick you in your face. <laughs> he would say to you, look, there's nowhere I deserve this. Nowhere. Nowhere. This is God acting in ways that I cannot understand. I failed him. I failed him. I'm amazed at what he has done. For an entire even great city to turn in this way. There's one thing that Jonah would say, however, and it is this, that I'm convinced that this is a God of second chances. Number one, with me. With me. And number two, with this people. I'm just completely blown off, completely by what has happened here. But lastly, and I think we need to hurry on to close. The response we began with. Remember, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Many people find it difficult when they come across passages in the Bible of God changing his mind. They say, how? Doesn't he know all things? Here he is, God relents. In fact, the Old Testament, rather the, the King James Version, uses the word repented. <clears throat> God repented of what he had purposed to do. But I think the right word is relented. He changed his mind. How do we explain this? Well, what God does not change his mind about is his decretive will. In other words, that which is his 
plan for history that is not dependent upon how you are relating or not relating to him. That he will never change. The, the purpose of redemption will never change. Or even our own lives as written behind the scenes which we have no preview to. That written account, that is set in concrete and will never change. But as to his moral and righteous will and its consequences, that's a different matter. In other words, when the Lord threatens us, as he did in this particular case, it was in order for the people to repent. So once they repent, this same God, who is a good God, doesn't change in the sense that he promises forgiveness to repentant sinners. He doesn't change. That is who he is. He is a pardoning God. So when Jonah was saying, Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It was a threat that he was making. In other words, the message was repent before disaster comes. Some people go to passages such as Numbers 23 that speak about the Lord is not man that he should change his mind. Let's just quickly read it, uh, and then I'll close. I've taken long on this, but you can understand why. Numbers 23, it's referring to the days when Balak and Balaam were trying to, uh, to curse the people of Israel. Balak was paying Balaam to do so, but Balaam was failing to curse the people of Israel. And it is in the midst of that that it says in verse 19, Numbers 23, God is not mine that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it, or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? And people look at that quickly and say, you see, it is saying he can't change his mind here, but here he has changed his mind. And again, it's the failure to recognize that what he's talking about here is a God who has entered into covenant with the people of Israel. They are his people, and therefore he will not utterly destroy them. He won't. He keeps his side of the covenant. He doesn't change. He says in the book of Malachi that because I don't change, O Israel, you are not consumed. Because I don't change. And in the end, 
Balak and Balaam failed to destroy the people of Israel until Balaam whispered something to Balak, which he later used, and was when introduced prostitution and idolatry among the Israelites. And then God sent discipline among them. But it was in order again to restore them to himself. God does not change. And the change we are looking at here is to do with <clears throat> forgiving. Why? Well, there we are again. He is a God of second chances. He is. Shouldn't we be grateful that he is? Shouldn't we? That in that sense, he doesn't change. He is a God of second chances. He did it to Jonah. He's done it to this great nation. And here he is. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. Brethren, where we began is where I conclude. If there is anything we must never lose sight of in this life, it is the wonder of the grace of God. The wonder of the grace of Individuals that God uses the most are not those who can't remember their terrible sins. It is those who, remembering that, their gratefulness is a major springboard in Christian service. I want to assure you I want to assure you. And I want to plead with you in case you are where we found Jonah this evening. Get over it. God is not finished with you yet. Amen.